Welcome, if you're joining us online, it's so great that you are a part of our fellowship. Uh, this is our 11 o'clock service here at the Vine. We have four services, 9, 15, 11, 2, and 4, and you miraculously are at the 11, and we're so glad you are. If you're tuning in from wherever in the world, we know that there's a bunch of you guys that are joining us faithfully every week online. Um, that means the world to us. We're so glad that you are. Church in this day and age is a hybrid mix of people in a room and people gathered online, so welcome. Um, man, I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm sorry. I'm just going to put it right up front. I'm excited. You guys excited? I, I'm excited because we're going to open the Word of God together. Yeah. We're going to open the Word of God together and dive into Scripture. How does that sound? I have, a, I have a longing inside of me. It's a, it's a longing that has been in me for many, many years. This longing was, was placed inside of me the first, very first time I got to preach. Uh, I was 19 years old, and I was invited to preach, and I was terrible. But I had this longing inside of me. And, and ever since I've become a pastor, I've been a pastor now 12 years, and been in church leadership for over 20 years, this longing has never gone away. It's the longing for breakthrough. I desperately pray for and desire breakthrough. I want breakthrough in my own personal life. I, I, I know the areas intimately where I am broken. I, I, I'm very conscious in my own life of the places where sin so easily entangles. I, I, I know what is, what is dry in me. And just like that song that we're singing, I long for the dry bones to be made into an army. I long for us to understand what, what breakthrough truly feels like. I want it for you as well. And every time I prepare a message, every time I come before you, whether it's on a Sunday or some other capacity, I want you to know and to feel your breakthrough. If I was to use a, a biblical phrase for it, I would say resurrection. I have a resurrection passion in me. I, I want to know personally the resurrection power of Christ in me. Paul writes about that power. I read about it in Scripture, but I want to encounter it. I want to know what it is to go to the dead places of sin in my life, to the insecurities and the pride that I carry, and feel a resurrection, a transformation, a change in those things. That's my passion. That's why I get up here every Sunday and do what I do. Resurrection life for me and for you. And at the beginning of this year, I remember the sense in me that I was deeply frustrated because I've been praying for this breakthrough for me personally for many years, and I've yet to truly see it take place. And I've yet to see the resurrection power in me that I truly desire. And at the beginning of this year, the beginning of 2021, I was, I was frustrated with God. And when I'm frustrated with God, I like to go on a long walk with God. And so I decided to do this hike, and I call it my stomping hike. I walk really loud and fast. And I use this time to tell God all the things that he's terrible at as a deity. The things that he's doing really bad in my life. And the frustrations and anger I have, why I don't feel like I've got this resurrection like I want it. I, I want God to wave his magic wand and set me free. And I remember as I'm pounding on this walk and I'm trying to tell God, you need to prove once again, God, that you love me. You know, those kind of prayers. Maybe I'm the only, am I the only person who prays prayers like this? Yes. This person sitting over there, like, that guy's not Christian. 
So I'm on this walk and I'm, I'm, I'm praying this frustration and anger at God. And, and here's what God says. Let me read this to you. He says this to me. He goes, Andrew, you long for all this breakthrough and resurrection in your life, but you have conveniently avoided the simplest truth of all. You can't have resurrection without first experiencing death. For there to be an empty tomb, there must first of all be a bloody cross. Not the words of inspiration I was hoping for. I'm going to be honest with you. Not kind of what I wanted to hear from God. I mean, I, I wanted to hear the opposite. I wanted to hear, oh, I'm here to bless you, Andrew. Oh, I'm here to give you things. Oh, I'm here to, to, to change your life, Andrew. Oh, I'm here to do all these things by my grace in your life. I'm here to wave my magic wand and all that pride in you. I'm going to immediately remove it. I wanted God to do the miracle. God wanted to do the process in my life. Are you, are you with me? I, I wanted the glory of resurrection without the pain of death. And I, and I realized in this moment that I've petered Jesus. Anyone else ever petered Jesus? You know that, that moment in, in Matthew 16 where, 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 where Peter does this amazing thing? He says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And, and, and Jesus responds and he says, wow, you've got it right. Yes, I am. And then he immediately begins to teach the disciples that he has to go to the cross and die and suffer. And Peter had the right title, but the wrong idea. And so Peter says to him, whoa, 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 hang on a sec. You're the Messiah. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to die. And then Jesus says those beautiful, powerful words, probably the most powerful words in the whole of the New Testament, get behind me, Satan. This walk was my get behind me, Satan moment. I petered Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, I, I want all the breakthrough in my life, but I want you to do it with your little magic wand of your miracle. And I'm not willing to submit myself to, to the things that need to die in me in order for me to be raised again into life. I want the glory without any of the struggle and the death. It reminded me as I was walking of Mark chapter 10, where there's two disciples, James and John, they come to Jesus and they say, when you die and we get into glory, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand in the places of power and authority? You know how Jesus responds? He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to have to drink? Like he, he basically says to the disciples, if you want to have places of power and glory and authority and breakthrough. You're going to have to drink the same cup that I am about to drink. Are you willing to do that? And as I'm walking on this walk and I'm telling God off and I'm desiring for all this breakthrough, essentially what God does is he shows up and says, do you want breakthrough, Andrew? If you want breakthrough, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. As Paul continues his incredible letter to the church in Philippi, as he's unpacking this beautiful, fresh new vision of an alternative society, what church could look like if it was living publicly in the world around it, showing something of the nature and the mercy and the glory of Jesus. As Paul is unpacking this, he finally gets to the point in his letter where he begins to talk about the topic that excites him the most, but is not the easiest to hear. He's, he's already talked to them that this new society is going to look like a new way to pray. He's already talked to them it's going to look like a new way to lead. He's told them that it's going to look like a new way to find unity amongst each other. He's been straight with them that it's going to require a new kind of holiness. And now he gets to the point where he mentions a thing that undergirds all of those things. He says it's also going to take a new way to die. 
And at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul unpacks this idea with an incredible poem. It's also known as a hymn. It's one of the perhaps most famous bits of Paul's writing in all of his letters. It's a glorious just six or so verses where Paul explains to them what Christ has done in his life and his death and his resurrection. And in this poem, Paul is hoping to inspire them into a pattern for themselves of death and resurrection. And if you're in here today or watching online and you're like, I'm desiring breakthrough for me, can I introduce you to a new way to die? I'm going to read this to us out of Philippians chapter 2. And as we do so, I want you to close your eyes, whether you're online or in this room. Would you close your eyes with me? And I want to read these words to you. And I want you just to soak on the beauty and profundity of what Paul is saying about Jesus. This is Philippians 2 starting in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Yes, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, as we open up this incredible poem of Paul's, as we sit today on this reality of what Jesus has done. Lord, I want to pray that you would deeply challenge us about our own way of life. Lord, we desire to be an alternative society in this moment of Hong Kong's history. Lord, would you teach us how we should die? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone says, This is an amazing poem. It's not a poem in structure or style like a Greek or Roman poem of the first century. Instead, what Paul's doing is he's using language and words and structure to highlight something of honor and value about the person he's writing about. He's writing about Jesus, and he wants us to see the honor and the value of Jesus. Now, it's hard to see it in the English, but when you look at it in the Greek, you begin to understand how he structures it. So I want to show you the structure that is there in the Greek. And if you go to the next slide, what you'll see is basically the center of his poem is that one phrase, even death on a cross. And uh, above that, there are three stanzas of three lines. Do you see that? And then below it, there are another three stanzas of three lines each. That's how it reads in the Greek. And it all funnels into this one statement, even death on a cross. For Paul, he's laying out the foundation of his Christology, the foundation of how he thinks about Jesus. And he's saying that everything that has ever happened has kind of like funneled into this one moment of Jesus on the cross. And everything that's ever going to happen in the rest of history flows out of this one moment of the cross. Paul is saying basically the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, is the center point of all of history. Talking about idea of being in the center, uh, check out this Chinese word behind me, a very familiar word to all of us. It's the word for center, for middle. 
It's, of course, the word that's used to speak of China itself, the Middle Kingdom. And the reason why it's used for that in China is because it's a statement of intent. What they're saying is we are the Middle Kingdom, that everything is west or east of us. We are in the middle. Are you with me? In the very same way, Paul is taking the cross, and he, if you will, he's saying that the cross is the middle kingdom of all history, that everything that's ever existed is either west or east of this moment of Jesus' death on the cross. He is the center place, the middle kingdom of all things. Paul wants to draw our attention to the beautiful idea that the cross is the pivot point, the turning point of everyone and all of creation's history. Now, to help us to understand this, in the poem itself, Paul draws from a whole bunch of Old Testament moments, Old Testament ideas. He, he speaks from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55. He talks about Psalm 8. He's pulling from a lot of different places. We don't have time today to go into all of that, but I want to just point two things out that is found in the Old Testament Jewish thinking that comes importantly into Paul's poem. Right in the middle of the poem, he says that Jesus is obedient even to death. He uses this word obedience. Now, for Paul, this is not a word he uses a lot in the book of Philippi or elsewhere, but it's an important word for him because he's actually using this word to draw a contrast with a significant moment in history. He's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And he's saying, do you remember that there was this one man, the first man, Adam? And in Adam's disobedience, all of sin, basically, at that point, kind of entered into the world. And he's saying, it's amazing to me that we have at the starting point of all history, this idea of disobedience. So picking up on that, he wants to make it clear that the center of the cross is not an act of disobedience. It's not an act of oppression. It's not an act where the enemy won. It's an act of obedience. See, where Adam, no, no, you, got, you got to follow me here. Is everybody okay? You still switched on. Okay, here, listen to this. Where Adam was disobedient to God and brought the world into death, Jesus is obedient to death to bring the world into life. Come on, guys. I mean, this is profound theology that Paul is pulling together here. The disobedience of Adam, one man, everything into sin. The obedience of one man to death, bringing everything into life. This is why Paul describes Paul elsewhere as the new Adam. The second Adam, because there's a whole new life, east and west, centering around him. Are you tracking with this? Now, the second thing he does is he, in the second half of the poem, he speaks about the name that is above every name. And this draws Paul all the way back to the other really important time in Israel's history, the Exodus. And it actually literally pulls us to that Exodus 3 moment where Moses is encountered by a burning bush and God's presence is there and God declares to Moses, I have seen the suffering of my people and I desire to now come down and to set my people free. That's, that's Paul's passion. Oh, sorry, that's Jesus' passion communicated at the burning bush. And Paul draws on that because Moses says to God in reply this, who are you? What is your name? And God's reply is, I am who I am which comes known in the Hebrew as this idea of Yahweh, the name for their God, which in the Greek version of the Old Testament is translated as Lord. 
It's the same word that Paul puts into the poem here that everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Paul's doing is he's connecting the cross to that moment in Exodus chapter 3. And he's basically saying this, that really Jesus is the ultimate culmination of the burning bush narrative. In Jesus's life, death and resurrection, God has indeed come to the world and he has set his people free of their slavery and oppression. And I think for Paul, he even thinks that God in that moment of the burning bush already had Jesus in mind. That one will come that will break through everything and finally turn this world into a place of freedom and liberation. All because of the cross. Are you with me? So the question we have to ask ourselves is how does Jesus do this? I mean, how does he liberate us all from oppression and slavery. Well, that's ultimately what the poem is about. So let me take you right back to the beginning of the poem in verse five. Listen to this. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul starts the poem by saying, this poem is all about the attitude of Jesus. And and, and by that, the Greek word for attitude here means literally your mindset, your pattern of thinking. The way in which you think is really, really important. And Paul's saying that Jesus was able to go to the cross to pay the price for our sin, to be able to liberate us from our slavery and oppression because he had a certain way of thinking, a certain mindset that he had. And the poem is about his mindset. Do you want to know about that? Okay, no one really wants to know about that. Are you guys okay? Because I'm going to preach the heck out of this passage, okay? And I want us to enjoy it together. Are you awake still? I can see some people nodding off. Do not nod off in the name of Jesus. If you nod off, I will come and knock you on the head. In love. Here's what Paul says. He starts in verse 6, and he says, Jesus, who in the very nature is God. The first place he starts with painting this beautiful poem of who Jesus is and his mindset. He says he is the very nature God. He sits on the throne of all power and authority in the world. There is no one else other than Jesus because he is the fullness, the very nature. He doesn't say Jesus is like God. He doesn't say Jesus is hoping to reflect God a little bit. He certainly doesn't say he's the image of God. He says, no, he is the very nature of God. So it's Paul declaring the full deity of Jesus right from the start. You see that? But then, very importantly, he introduces us to Jesus's mindset. See, whilst Jesus is the full nature of God, which means he has all the power and authority, highest levels of anyone in the world, he says he did not believe or think that equality with God was something to be grasped. That word grasped in the Greek is the word um, hypekmos. Now, it's quite a hard word to translate, but scholars essentially mean to be taken advantage of or to exploit. So what Paul's saying is, although Jesus was completely God, his mindset was not to use his power and authority to exploit those under him. You following this? Now, this is really important because Paul's immediately beginning to draw a contrast to the person of Jesus by the language he's using to Caesar in the Greek or Roman Empire. 
And he's saying, although around us we see all of these examples of those who are in the highest places of power and authority, lording over us, exploiting us, taking advantage of us, you need to know that the mindset of Jesus, even though he has way greater power and authority than Caesar could ever long for, his mindset is not to take advantage, not to exploit. Are you with me? Instead, he says this, instead, making himself nothing. Paul uses the word kenosis in the Greek. He basically means to empty himself. Now, he's not saying he's emptying himself of the nature of God. He's emptying himself of the power and the exploitative nature of that power or the potential exploitative nature of that power. He is distancing himself. He's emptying himself that. And basically he says, and guess what he does? He comes and he appears in human likeness. And essentially he comes and, excuse me, sorry. Yes, excuse me. Sorry. Yep. Hi. There you go. Sorry. And he comes and he sits amongst us. That's what he does. He comes and sits right down in the midst of humanity as a human, just like you and just like you. And just like me. Are you uncomfortable? Nope. It's okay. <laughs> it was a little uncomfortable being with Jesus sometimes. Sorry. <laughs> but he comes and he sits amongst us in this world that we're in because he wants to be like us. He doesn't want to exploit. He doesn't think being God is something that can be grasped a hold of. Instead, he's willing to empty himself so he can be amongst us. Are you, are you with me? Now that's already an thank you sir that's already an amazing place of great humility but Paul does not stop there. He goes straight back and he says, number one, he doesn't want to be God. He doesn't want to grasp on, exploit the power. So he makes us, or he makes himself in the image of us, like the image of human kind of-ness. But then he goes a step further. He says he's not even just there. He hasn't just done that, but he's, he's then been found in the likeness of, of a servant. He uses the word doulos, which in the Greek means slave. Now you really need to pay attention here because this is the phenomenal thing that Paul is saying. Jesus didn't take equality with God, something to be exploited, but he didn't even take equality with humanity, something to be exploited. Instead, he took on the very nature of a slave. Now, a slave, the word is doulos. It's translated servant in most of our Bibles, but it's the same word for slave. A slave in Greek or Roman culture had no rights, had no freedom had nothing at all. They were literally classified as a non-person. Imagine if you were somebody in Greek or Roman society reading this poem, thinking, what kind of God would give up all of his power and basically become a non-person? This is not a God we have ever heard about. And Paul's saying our God, the one that we worship, has emptied himself to such a degree that he's not even trying to be human. He's actually a slave of all giving up all of his rights, all of his power, in order that others might know a better life. This is Jesus with a bowl of water and a piece of rug trying to wash the feet of the one who's about to betray him. A complete servant, a slave, in order that some might find life. Are you blown away so far? Here's the crazy thing. Paul doesn't even stop there. He says, and then, not even considering being a slave enough, Jesus becomes obedient to death. Even death 
if you will, uh, on a cross. This thing here that we look at as Christians and we go, woohoo, victory. But anyone in the first century reading this poem for the first time would have gone, pain, excruciation, death, destruction, the very symbol that actually represented Caesar the most. Paul's saying that the place of Jesus' greatest obedience was to allow himself to be overcome by the very tool of Caesar's tyranny. Because when you thought about Caesar and his power, power, when you thought about his idea of world domination and what he wanted to do with his power and authority, it was the cross, the crucifixion of those that stood against him, spoke out against him, that, that basically was the way that he retained his power. And so I want you to see what Paul's doing here. Paul breathtakingly takes the very symbol of Caesar's most hated and brutal power and he turns it into a symbol of self-giving divine love. That's what Paul is doing in this poem. He's saying the very thing that you think keeps you in power, Caesar, is the very thing that has broken your power forever. The very thing that you thought was going to kill us becomes the very thing that death is enabled to bring us into life. Are you following this? Now, as amazing as all of that is, Paul then goes on and says, because of all of that, a God who doesn't think equality of God is something to be exploited, who doesn't even think he should be human, who is willing to be a slave in order to go to the cross, that God is worthy of our worship. This is why in the second half of the poem, he talks about worship. He says, God then takes him, and this is where he moves into resurrection. God takes him from the cross, brings him back into the fullness of life, resurrects him, and he uses these words. He says, he is now in the highest place. He's exalted to the highest place where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Paul, writing this poem, moving it on as he does, brings it to this crescendo, this climax at the end of it, where all of the church says, Amen. Are you with me? Like this is the God that we worship. This is why we gather like this and watch online. This is why we call ourselves and hold the name Christian because we believe our God had the mindset, the attitude, the thinking to not think he was God, to not even think he was good enough to be human, to not even be a slave, but be obedient to the very thing that was supposed to kill him forever. And in trust and faith, God raises him up and we all stand around and say, worthy is your name. There is no one better. No one better. None but Jesus. We sang it earlier. That's why you're singing it. Isn't that beautiful? Now, here's the thing. If you read this poem and you finish only in a place of worship, you've completely missed the point of the poem itself. Sure, this poem should lead the church into a place of praise. It's used that way many times. But if all we ever do is read a poem like this and it draws us into a worship with Jesus, we've actually missed the whole point of why Paul wrote the poem in the first place. Notice what he says right at the beginning in verse five again. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul's saying right at the front, even before he begins to tell you about all this amazing stuff Jesus has done, he's saying this poem is not actually about Jesus, it's actually about you. 
Everything I'm about to say is actually about you. It's not designed. Think of it this way. The point of the poem is not that Jesus would be your majesty. The point of the poem is that Jesus would be your mentor. That he would be the one that you would model your life after. That you would look at Christ and say, I want to be more like that. I want to think more like that. I want that mindset and that attitude for myself. I, I want to truly know who he is. And I, I want to empty myself of my pride and my brokenness. This is the opposite mindset to what I had on my stomping walk at the beginning of this year. Where I was like, ah, oh, God, I want you just to do it straight away. I had more the mindset of Caesar than of a disciple of Jesus. I wanted the instant fix, the complete miracle, the Santa Claus waving of the wand to deal with all my issues. And Jesus was saying, the mindset, Andrew, is one where you're willing to go to the cross. You're willing to say that there's brokenness in me. And yeah, I want liberation from it. But Lord, I need to confess it to you first. I need to humble myself. I need to realize that there is seduction of power and authority in me. I need to realize that, that it's something I've struggled with all my adult life. Insecurities, holding on to power. There's an ugliness in me. And I need the mindset of Christ. Otherwise, I will shame the cross. And I will Peter Jesus every single time. There's a new way to die, Paul is saying. And it's so important that we get this because I think we really struggle with this, particularly here in Hong Kong. I, th I think we see this and we think this is great, but actually the reality is we really struggle with this because I think in Hong Kong we have a game and it's a game that we play in our social circles, our spheres of influence with our friends, with our family. It's a game we play in our workplaces. It's the game of comparison and evaluation. And we're constantly, I think, as people in Hong Kong, comparing and evaluating ourselves in comparison with others because we want to know which seat I'm sitting in. And if I'm not sitting in the seat of greatest success and greatest ambition and greatest power, then in Hong Kong, we honor this seat, don't we? But we ignore this seat right here. This is why we bring somebody like Marina in front of you and we say 23 years that her heart, her humility should sober us. But we have a problem in Hong Kong because we like the places of power. And we do this by asking each other questions. What school did they go to? What job do they have? Where do they live? What car do they drive? What clothes do they wear? Where do they go on holiday? And all of these things help us to balance up where we are in the pecking order so we can discover where it is on which chair that we're sitting. I mean, I mean think about it this way. You're at a, you're at a dinner party. And you go to that dinner party and you're in the place of power and authority because you like yourself. And you go to that dinner party and you meet somebody for the first time and you say, hey, so which school did you go to? Where did you go to university? And then you realize that they went to a better university than you did. <laughs> so then you ask them the next question, what, what do you do for a living? And then you find out that they're a teacher and you're a lawyer. <laughs> and then after that, you might ask them a question like, well, where, where do you live? And then you find out that they're in mid-levels, but you live in Causeway Bay. <laughs> and then in that place, you are like, well, are you married? And they're like, oh, yeah, I have a girlfriend. And they, they introduce you to their girlfriend. And you, you realize their girlfriend is way hotter than yours. 
And then as we always do in these conversations, you say, well, well can, we, can we meet on social? Can we connect that way? And you, you change, in, in, in change you know, your Instagram profiles and you're looking at that and you're like, oh, I've got way more followers than they do. That's great. That's... Are you with me? We do this too. We do this too in our churches, in our spirituality. It's like, what church do you go to? I go to the Vine. My pastor's better than your pastor. How many downloads this week? But we do this in our spirituality too. And we joke about it and I'm kind of making fun of it, but I'm making fun of it because I'm trying to make an important point to you. That we need to get rid of this attitude. Our attitude should be like Christ Jesus, who doesn't exploit, who doesn't want power, who doesn't want prestige, who is willing to humble himself to come and live amongst us and then humble himself again to, to a slave and then be so obedient that he's willing to go to death on a cross so that somebody might find life. What would it look like for you to live like that? Paul is offering a new way to live that necessitates a new way to die. Christ's mindset, the mindset of Christ. Humility, sacrifice, servant-heartedness, death to self. This is the, this is the messianic way. It's the way of God. And, and if we're going to build an alternative society in Hong Kong, if you're going to be a part of an alternative society, if you want to be a part of a church that looks different, that's yeast and dough and not dough and dough, we need to disrupt our faulty thinking and begin to think true and good again. You need to learn how to die again. I'm going to put it to you straight. It's time that you denied yourself, picked up your cross again, and followed him. And here's the thing. For Paul, this is supposed to happen publicly. This is not us in some private corner serving one another in love, although we do that. But you see, as Jesus' people, our commitment to humility and to sacrifice is a public responsibility as much as it is a private spirituality. Come on, church. It's as much a public responsibility as it is a private spirituality that we must have. It has to work itself out in our hands and our feet. There is a different way to live that necessitates a different way to die. It's the messianic way. And Paul is writing this poem and he's saying, learn to live like this. And if you can learn to live like this, humbling yourself, dealing with your pride, confessing your sin, walking before each other in our reality, our brokenness, longing for breakthrough, but not wanting to worship a God that just waves our breakthrough away or waves our sin away, but someone who that we come to because of his love, because of his sacrifice, that then changes us, that then turns us around in our confession of our brokenness. As we do all of that, we become the very people Christ wants us to be. This is like Paul summarizing for us through this poem that one great thing that Jesus said. If anybody was to come after me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. So let me ask you again. Do you want breakthrough in your life? Can we pray? Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads online and in this room before you, before this incredible image of the cross of Jesus. 
And Father, we do so in a place of humility, humbled by the journey you took. Lord, we're thankful that Paul didn't mince his words for his church. And in presenting to us this beautiful poem that causes us to worship and to honour Jesus in ways that perhaps we hadn't even really thought about, the ultimate point of that is so that we might change, so that our heart and our attitude and our mindset might be different. And so, Father, we come to you in this moment as your church, desiring breakthrough and resurrection, but not wanting to make the mistakes of having a mindset of this world in that process. Lord, where our pride gets in our way in this city, would you forgive us? Lord, where our materialism blinds us from the poor, would you forgive us? Where our attitudes fight for us to be on the throne, would you forgive us? We come before you as a church desiring to be this alternative society, learning what it is to pick up our cross. I wonder whether you would just take a moment between you and God and perhaps just allow the Holy Spirit to show you anything in your life. Anything that is more Caesar thinking than Jesus thinking. Jesus wants you to walk the messianic path. And I believe that the enemy has a strategy of stronghold over our thinking. This is why Paul later would say that we need a renewing of our minds in Romans 12. Here he says, your patterns of thinking must be like Christ Jesus. And so allow the Holy Spirit just to come right now and maybe show you. And like I said earlier, you know, Jesus does this because he loves us. He's not this angry schoolmaster who's telling us off. But he loves us with the cross. And he challenges us to pick up our cross. And yes, we have salvation, liberation, and freedom in Him. But we don't have a Santa Claus. We have a God who would show Thomas and others the scars in His hands. The hard-fought victory of obedience to death. Where is it that you might need to die? What is it that you need to die to? What attitudes mindsets, thoughts, is Christ calling you to die to today, to confess to Him so that you might know the fullness of life. Just take some time to spend your own time with God and bring whatever prayer of confession you may need to bring. And We're going to worship together then as a church as we respect and honour the one who has humbled himself so beautifully. May we therefore humble ourselves now.